0: College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free.
1: Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco.
2: Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson, joined by Larissa Bianco. Hello, Larissa. Hi,
1: John.
2: Larissa, great work with this podcast. I hear we're up to 60,000 downloads and counting. And so that's really exciting. I'm really surprised by how many people are enjoying this thing. And that's really due to your great work producing. So good job. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for your work on Twitter also at AMI Fellowship. Shameless plug. Our guest today, very excited to have him on. Founder of the Lyceum Institute, Dr. Brian Kempel. Hello, Brian.
0: Hey, John, Larissa, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: It's great to have you here. And for years, I've been admiring your work. I don't believe that AMI has any competitors, but we definitely have uh, institutes in the liberal arts world who align. And I would certainly count the Lyceum Institute as one of those. From afar, I've been admiring the sturdiness of your ideological foundations. In your own words, can you please give our audience an elevator pitch for the Lyceum Institute and the good
0: work it does? You know, I think in some sense, I almost don't have to because we are so similar. uh, And I expect that most of your listeners probably already know why we're doing this, right? Which is that real education, true education has been, you know, sadly, and I always hate to start off this way, but it's sadly been on the decline for quite some time. And access and opportunity to to really pursue it has become more and more difficult. And I think with the the digital worlds, the digital environment, we have an opportunity to to provide it. And I so agree that's what we're trying to
2: do well, well done and And when we started the the Albertus Magnus Institute, it was kind of a crazy thing. It was kind of a pipe dream. We kind of threw a flyer out there and see what would hit. And to our surprise, There's been a great amount of response. I'm sure you can understand that and appreciate it. And were you surprised by the amount of market and interest and thirst for what you were up to there was?
0: Yeah. um, You know, just to maybe give a little, little backgrounds to it, um, you know, I received my doctorate in 2016 which I still feel like was just yesterday, but I'm now realizing that was seven years ago. Um, amazing how time flies. Uh, and I was on the job market for for about two years. Um, I put in 129 different job applications over those two years. Oh, and wow. for anyone who's ever put in an academic application, that's not a little amount of work. That's, that's a f- several hours, if not days of your life that you spend on each one of those. And so... Uh, I, I was really, you know, a little bit in the doldrums thinking about what am I going to do with myself here? I spent the last 10 years, you know, working towards this, this doctorate and now, now what, now what am I going to do? Uh, do I just go on to, you know, regular life? Do I go pump gas or, uh, clean floors in a Starbucks? Um, And so fortunately, I was I'd been in a situation where I've been doing some consulting and some uh, marketing consulting and things like that. So financially, I wasn't strapped in in desperate dire straits or anything. Uh, But I thought, you know, I I just I, I love this too much. Let me see if people would be interested in some sort of online courses that are not for any certification or degree or anything, but just because they love learning. And to my shock and surprise, here I am just a random guy with a, you know, small social media presence. And I've got people who are willing to to sign up for courses and, and spend their time and their energy and their effort on it. And so it's just grown steadily ever since then.
2: That's so beautiful and thank you for reminding me why I did not pursue a doctorate besides the fact that I probably not cut out for it I was terrified of that situation uh, the job market is is no fun in in our field of course in our academic field but tell us what uh, a student might expect in the Lyceum Institute to whom do you market who's appreciating the material and what's the experience like uh, tell us I know there are some differences between Lyceum and AMI just pragmatically, what are they?
0: Yeah, well, I I think um, most of our our students, and maybe I should explain a little bit structure wise, um, we kind of have two different ways of being involved with the Lyceum. Uh, We have enrolled members who are parts of this, this persistent online community that we have who Um, We'll take seminars, but can also enroll in our language courses. Uh, We teach currently Latin. We're going to be adding probably, you know, knock on wood, some Greek this year or maybe early next year. Uh, And then looking to expand to German and French as well in the coming years. Uh, We also have Trivium courses um, in in grammar, logic and rhetoric. Uh, And so enrolled members can participate in any of that. There's also various uh, open chats that we have twice a week. We have a happy hour every Wednesday evening uh, where people just sort of talk about whatever topics are sort of on everyone's mind. Uh, We have, um, you know, art discussions, discussions of literature sort of informally uh, as part of this online persistent community. Uh, But then there are also the seminars, which are in some way really the, the, the beating heart of what we're doing uh and, and these are open to the public for, for non-enrolled members so if someone wants to just take a seminar and they don't have the time to commit to being a fully enrolled member they can just come in and, and take a single seminar uh here or there um and so those seminars uh are are focused in philosophy and they cover a wide range of topics um we've got you know politics and ethics you know, metaphysics the sort of more standard ones that you'd find in in know, broadly Catholic-aligned institutions or traditional institutions. Uh, But then we also have some things more focused um, to mystic psychology, in particular, uh, semiotics, um, and then special topics as well. Uh, Right now, for instance, we have um, one of our faculty fellows is teaching a seminar on uh, John Henry Newman. Um, So, wide range of topics, uh, wide, wide range of things.
2: What is your tuition model, if any?
0: Yeah, we have a, a pricing model of subsidiarity. Um, so we've got three different levels for for enrollment, uh, the most inexpensive being at $10.50 a, a month. And that includes access to language, um, Trivium. Uh, we also have an archive of all our previous seminars. So uh, all the 250 plus lectures that we have now are accessible to, to every enrolled member. Um, and then we have a, an advanced level at $30 a month or $300 a year, uh, which includes access to three seminars per year. Uh, and then uh, a premium en- enrollment, which includes uh, eight seminars per year that can be divided among two people. Um, and that's at $60 a month or $600 a year.
2: That sounds great. And certainly the value that you can achieve there is probably rivaling that of. Uh, uh, formal education, brick and mortar, you would say, it looks like the faculty is stellar.
0: Yeah. Um, we've got, you know, I think, uh, we've got an interesting mix of people, most of whom are people that I've, I've met, you know, just from graduate school or, or otherwise. Um, but yeah, we, we can cover a wide range of topics and, uh, uh offer a lot of, of insight, I think. Um, yeah, as far as you know the the comparability to a brick and mortar institution, there are certain things that we just you can't compensate with over the internet. It's true. Um, you you can't sit down uh, uh over a beer together face to face. Uh you can't cigarettes you know, in the courtyard. And... <laughs> right. <laughs> no cigarettes in the courtyard. Um yeah, uh, all those little, you know, casual encounters, bumping into people, uh various things like that 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 tends to happen. Uh, when you're on campus, um, but I think we we've really put a lot of work into growing the sense of community, nonetheless, and really getting people to to know each other and, and to talk with each other, um, to to have conversations which are unstructured, and I think that's a, a huge part uh, of trying to supplement with the digital world what we're we're maybe lacking these days in the the real physical environment that we all inhabit that's
2: beautiful we should team up and do some joint in-person event so we can get together and smoke cigarettes in the courtyard if that's (laughs) something you're into Uh, you guys are you're located in new york and obviously have students and members around the world uh we are also everywhere i'm in california staff in a few different states but uh, it's really refreshing to see the springtime of the liberal arts at work in your work. And uh, you did your doctorate at university of St. Thomas Houston. where did you do your undergrad and what sparked your initial interest in the liberal arts and the trivium and the quadrivium in particular?
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I went to a, a no longer extant undergraduate institution it was a small school in North Georgia uh, named Southern Catholic College, and it was uh, founded by, by a gentleman who had made a lot of money with a software company that he sold, and he moved to Georgia and discovered there's no Catholic college there, and he wants to send his kids to a Catholic college, so let me found one. Why not? Um, yeah, uh, and so the school only was in operation for five years before it closed down. Um, wow. And you were
2: one of its first and only
0: fruits. Good job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We we graduated two classes and uh, I was in the, the second class that graduated. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, there was there was some mismanagement with uh, the finances and fundraising. And uh, I think the, the mission and vision, though great at its outset, was not uh, stewarded in the proper way um so it was it was deeply uh, unfortunate but it was it was this amazingly small uh, and intimate atmosphere hmm. um i mean the at, at its peak the school only had 250 students so everyone knew everyone uh, everyone saw everyone all the time there was a lot of smoking cigarettes in in courtyards and uh uh drinking beers and uh having conversations outside the classroom a lot of which was really fostered by the, the faculty. Um, we, we had a great you know group of professors who were extremely dedicated, uh, most especially the philosophy professor, uh, Dr. Herbert Hartman, uh, who now teaches at Catholic University of America. Uh, but he was just so great about engaging students and talking to them all the time and, and, and visiting with them and really fostering that love of, of learning that it really produced this great atmosphere. And I think that's, um, you know, I'd always been uh, a little bit academically inclined, I, I suppose. But that really just, I think, set the fire. Says, you know, there's there's something to this life, to living the liberal arts and living uh, a life of inquiry.
2: Ain't that the truth? And all it takes is two or three good professors who are willing to pour themselves out, and you get a lifelong friend out of it, and starts a fire. That's right. Well, right on. What did you write your thesis about at Houston?
0: Yeah, I wrote my my thesis on uh, uh ends primum cognitum or being as first known in Thomas Aquinas and the Thomistic tradition. So Sweet.
2: All right, I got a yeah. Latin joke you'll appreciate. You ready? <laughs> it's it's a, it's a Latin epistemology dad joke. Are you okay with that? Sure. All right. <laughs> It's a question I'm going to ask you in Latin. Quomodo homo shit?
0: <laughs> I think yeah. I saw this one on on Twitter. <laughs> yes, a is posteriori.
2: It is <laughs> that's right. Answer a posteriori. How does a man know by by prior things, right? Uh, uh, or actually, uh, by by uh, posterior things by think Anyway, say I guess it, it it answers both, but it's funny. It's funny in Latin. Um, okay, so uh, I love epistemology. And why don't you answer that question as if it were not a dad joke, but a real question? How does man know?
0: Yeah, I mean, in, in some way, this is um, its probably been my central interest ever since undergraduate, really, probably second, third semester of undergraduate. Um, I can't recall exactly which order I took which courses in at this point, it's been been a little too long. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, and I think it's it's just a fascinating point. And let me let me contextualize maybe just a little bit. Um, I think where it becomes such a pressing question is the way that so many people today want to blur that line between human and animal cognition. That sort of presupposition very common to the moderns that particularly late moderns that the difference isn't really one of kind but that it's one of degree that we're just highly evolved apes or something along those lines yeah and so i think that's where the the interest in the question really grew for me is well that just doesn't seem right so let me dig into it and and just see if maybe we can answer a little bit better what does it mean when we say that human beings know um <clears throat> and i think there's a. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that people have tried to answer that question uh i think thomas aquinas really does give uh, it's very subtle the way that he describes you know this this being as first known this awareness of being which is distinctively human uh but it shows up everywhere in his his corpus that the first object the proper object of the intellect is being well, what, does, what does that mean what does it mean to say that we know being as opposed to say knowing beings or uh, knowing things um so uh yeah i don't i don't want to get too deep into the weeds here oh no um, go deep into the weeds brian please deep into the weeds okay well um part of the the central Element, I suppose, in in the dissertation again, um, is really distinguishing that uh, human cognition from animal cognition, and seeing how for for human beings, uh, our experience of of objects. Um, and here's a little etymological historical background on the word object to to get into the weeds. We use that word completely bass backwards today. Yes, we do
2: objectum
0: yeah objectum that which is thrown
2: against a thing in the way yes
0: yeah um and so recognizing that that all animals have objects but only human beings know things that we know things in a way as something which does not reduce to the manner in which we have objectivized them through our sense perception that we have an awareness of the irreducibility of the thing to the specific manner in which we have objectivized it that's what aquinas means by saying that being is the first object of our intellects that we have this awareness of that irreducibility of the objects of our cognition which opens up the whole world of of species specific distinctive human intellectual inquiry
2: is the distinction between the way a human knows a thing versus say an animal bumps into an object uh, rooted in our ability to abstract at all.
0: Um, so I, I, yeah, uh, I'm actually not a huge fan of the word um, abstraction, um, and, and I think part of the reason why is that it it suggests something. Not that if you understand it properly, it's it's problematic, but it suggests this notion of of looking into things and pulling out some sort of intelligible skeleton. Uh, that's hidden within them. And yeah, I think and I, maybe... I think
2: you know I I understand the way that that word is is perverted with the moderns to some extent, but there is also uh, an extent to which I look at my desk. I immediately can tell the difference between my desk and my microphone. And if I were to walk into a room, I'd be pretty able uh, quickly to discern all the desks in the room. Uh, and but when I know the desk as a thing. I don't have mahogany splinters in my brain matter. So in order to get deskness up here, there has to be some sort of spiritualization or abstraction. Is there a better word for that in your opinion? <clears throat>
0: um, I, I would call it just something like intellectual discovery, mm-hmm. discovery of of the intelligible meaning of what it is to be a desk, because we find that, that animals um, also have, Cognition of, of things right as as objects, not merely by bumping into them, but by anticipation of them or uh, desire of them, seeking of them, um, even in their their absence. Right. Um, so they have a kind of in late scholasticism, they make a distinction between intuitive and abstractive awareness, for instance. Mm -hmm. and uh, abstractive awareness is the presence of something to the mind without it being immediately present to the senses and this is realized to be common between humans and animals otherwise an animal would never go looking for a stream that it has previously encountered to find a drink
2: whoa there's a Uh, lot we have to unpack there okay so (laughs) what would be the difference between something how is something intelligible to the mind and if you were to put aquinas's language on that you made a distinction, I think, between intellectus and ratio. Is that accurate before I go further with that question?
0: Um, yeah, and I think even the word you know ratio is is kind of a loaded word. Yes. Um, and this is something that you find, again, in uh, one of the areas that I uh, have developed a, a bit of a specialized interest, um, and that is incorporated fairly heavily into the dissertation, is in the work of um, John of St. Thomas. Uh, John, John Ponceau, as he is also known. Um, and Ponceau makes this point very clearly that, uh, you know, we, we talk about ens rationis beings of reason, entio rationis, ra, and yet, you know, non-human animals form beings of reason as well. Uh, the, there has to be some anticipation of, of things which are not present to them that is formed by some sort of reasoning-like process. Uh, and he distinguishes between them as, um, formally in the human intellect and materially in animal cognition, which is itself an interesting distinction, uh, that we could get into a little bit if you, if you want. Yeah.
2: So g- give me an example. So, uh, from the Psalm, right. Is the deer longs for running water? Would the deer have to have a, an idea of running water and into, in order to pursue such a thing?
0: Well, it'd have to have something like a percept or a phantasm of a phantasm. stream or of streams, just generally. Um, so a, would, I live. Would, would uh, we
2: call that a memory yeah. or not?
0: Um. Yeah,
2: not in I, a I sense. Mean, it's, to, a, it's
0: a kind of yeah. It's a kind of memory. Um, we'd have to yeah. probably pull apart all the internal sense faculties that are elucidated in scholasticism of, uh, you know, the the imagination, the cogitative or estimative, and the, the memorative. Um, but certainly there's a memorative retention in non-human animals of various particulars and even patterns of particulars that they've encountered um We've probably all for instance uh uh come across a a, a dog with a racial bias right um
2: I don't know what kind of dogs you hang around Brian but i've I've <laughs> never come across a dog with a racial bias
0: yeah uh well it happens it actually happens fairly commonly I know, I'm just um, kidding
2: <laughs> okay there there is a if we just break down these very imperceptible but very real parts of any act of knowledge from a human, as you said earlier, the first is the sight of the good. And that happens receptively in the intellectus, in the passive, in the passive dimension of the highest faculty, which turns out to be the receptacle of ultimate knowledge but that's a spoiler alert i guess so but is that is that fair to say
0: well um uh, i'm I'm not sure maybe you can try putting that out again in maybe slightly different terms because i think i maybe lost a little something there maybe it cut out for a second
2: yeah so in any moral act or in any act of knowledge the first movement if you want to call it a movement uh, but more of a passive receptivity is at the is in the intellective faculty and it's a simple sight of the thing a reception of the thing
0: right oh, so dear. it's it's a reception of um yeah uh simple apprehension i think is maybe a little bit of the term that you're you're, you're yes. getting after here yes yeah. um and simple apprehension um usually is, uh, you know, put in the context of the three operations of the mind, simple apprehension being posited as the first. Uh, sorry, if you hear some noise there, someone's mowing their lawn. Um, oh, no, I don't. No problem. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, so simple apprehension um, is this this passive receptivity of things in an in indistinct fashion.
1: Right,
2: and then that would be um, immediately followed by a movement of the will so there's this uh, in at work in any moral action there's this constant interplay intellect will intellect will and then so the second would be the a movement of the erratics passionum, right the root passion or simple willing the 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 first moment of volition
0: well the moment of volition um doesn't come of of absolute and total necessity in this uh, observation of of being as first known. Uh the I movement think, of the world. Well I
2: think that's that's kind of my question. I I think right. for Aquinas and I not to make this a debate uh, which you would surely win, but it seems like it would have to uh, a being cannot be known as true without immediately being pulling one into it as good. Otherwise we wouldn't want to know the being. Right. And Aristotle this, says we all by nature
0: want to know right so so there's there's a distinction maybe which ought to be made here i suppose um because of this can be very uh i suppose confusing um because of the, the word first right we talk about being as first known um this is not intended as strictly a chronological moment of firstness right um it's but an ta- underlying
2: teleological
0: an underlying in in every instance of of every act of knowledge there's a, a firstness of being which is present in that act of knowledge as true um, is that right as uh well as as true sure uh, in a sense the true and, and being are convertible um and that uh the the nature of the truth um comes to develop over time as a possession of the intellect which is receiving this awareness of being um, so if you think of um, aquinas's disputed questions on truth the first article of the first question in which he discusses this convertibility of being and truth uh, you know he de- defines true in uh, a threefold manner um, concerning the the thing itself uh, as the source from which the second relation of adequation of the intellect and the thing is made which results in third the possession of this knowledge as it were in the intellect which is then uh, referred back through that to the thing itself and are you uh, saying that that is
2: are you saying that's possible isolated from any movement of volition or any
0: activity of the will well, um, yeah. So, to clarify on that point, um, mm-hmm. when we talk about the uh, volition of the will for the the good, uh, certainly there is a sense in which there is a kind of inevitability. I, I suppose that there will be a movement to that object, right? Uh, as an object of the intellect, as the intellect's own proper object, once its presence to it, right, it can't help but but uh, recognize the goodness of it and desire it um when we talk about the movement of the will uh, that of course is complex so there's the initial movement of the intending towards uh but then there's the actual act of of willing which proceeds across a multitude of different stages as it were
2: right and even prior to the intending there would be a simple willing which i think aquinas calls the well, it's it is a it is a movement of the first passion, right? The radix passionum that is amor. That is, as soon as the thing that is knowable is apprehended simply, it is identified, I guess not identified, but it is wanted by the will as good. Yeah, once this the, I want to know this.
0: if there's a presence of of truth to intellect, then intellect, because it has truth as its own proper object, is moved towards it as as a good,
2: yes. What else could be present to the intellect but truth?
0: <laughs> Falsity. <laughs> Falsity can, in a, fact, a, be present. Only,
2: a, only as a truth.
0: Only as a truth, only under the aspect of, of uh, its true that it's false. Right. And insofar um, as
2: the intellect uh, asserted something that was false, it would only be as a movement of the will based on a mistaken good. But the intellect can't do anything but true right that's all that's what it's built for we can have we can have false opinions but only as a movement of the will that it's based on a mistaken good or a misjudgment well, you
0: can you can have false intellectual beliefs um the intellect sure. is capable of falsifying and this is one of those points that um i think gets confused about the notion of simple apprehension as well um that simple apprehension in terms of its development uh, because simple apprehension despite the name is not purely simple um, there is, in fact, a discursive element which enters into it, which Aquinas mentions in uh, several places, The uh, sentences, commentary, and Summa Contra Gentiles being quite prominent, um, that you can have things like false definitions and false concepts uh, in as much as those concepts are, are falsely um, developed over time. But in reference back to the, the first known, uh, maybe to, to pull it back to that track. Uh, yes there's a corresponding movement of the will to to seek knowledge right and this is where we get that aristotelian uh, observation that uh, all men desire to know does come from this first intellectual awareness this first intellectual opening Hmm.
2: yes and then uh fast forward to the end of the moral action or any act of knowing and what's the what's the terminus of knowledge what is the will meant for what is the intellect meant for
0: oh uh this is in and of itself an interesting point right um you know you can say on the one hand it's to uh, by, by nature alone it's to know being and to know being in its fullest amplitude uh but of course that uh is is impossible from our natural state uh and so then there's that question of uh, nature and grace and whether or not uh, there's a possibility of natural fulfillment of the intellect and its ordinary movement um, or if there's something done by nature in vain
2: so our reach extends our grasp by nature by nature we want we are we are kpax university as Aquinas says we're we're capable of everything that is and sort of made for it but also because we are not the font and source of all that is we are not uh, able by nature alone to know all it is is that
0: accurate um it's it's almost a yes and no uh, sort of question right um because we're we are by very nature as intellectual knowers in some way in possession of the knowledge of all things indistinctly and vaguely uh, that in knowing being as first known all things are in some way vaguely implied mm-hmm. at the very least by that but in terms of their perfection and distinctness that is something that does exceed our our natural grasp so on the one hand yeah. there is a kind of frustration of our desire but on the other hand uh, our desire has been fulfilled albeit perhaps not in the way that we developed that desire
2: and you know what really interests me it's a it's a question that i think we're not going to be able to come close to exhausting but we'll sort of try on this podcast here is is that we are made to know things and we want to know things exhaustively but we can't exhaustively but we can't and not even the face of god right obviously that's what it's all about the beatific vision perfect beatitude but aquinas says we're not even capable of exhausting knowledge of so much as a fruit fly or a gnat right so things that we can describe but not Define. Uh, That is not have, you know, this complete, even, even artifacts. We can sort of, I can know what a guitar is because I can make one. I can't, but if I could, if I were a perfect luthier or something, I'd be able to do that and then know this artifact. But because I don't even have exhaustive knowledge of myself, I can't know the artifacts even exhaustively. So what do you have to say about that? It's it's really intriguing to me that we're made to know things and we want to know things. We strive to know things completely and it just completely eludes us at the same time.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I love that quote from uh, Aquinas from the sermon conferences on the apostles creed um, that the, our intellect is so debilitated that uh, no philosopher can know perfectly the essence of even a single fly. Yeah. Um, I, I quote it often um, because it's, it shows certainly his own humility, uh, that being among uh, some of the last of, of his published work um, in 1273, you know, that that was uh, written or that those conferences were delivered. Um, and I think the uh, the the point that I've always taken away from this, I, I published a paper on this some years ago um, on the uh, uh, title, The Consolation of a Christian which is um to say that you know uh we, we are desirous of more than we can ever have uh, even just even in, in the right proper desire of this life of what we have by our own natural powers it always exceeds our grasp this desire to know um and yet in some way that desire to know is filled by any act of knowledge it's just that it happens to awake a further, it happens to elicit a further desire uh, to know. Uh, we've, you know, certainly I would expect many of your your listeners and many within the Albertus Magnus Institute can testify to that great joy, which is that discovery of something true. Uh, when when you find something, it makes sense and it fits, and you have the answer to the question. It's it's a great joy, and yet that great joy draws us further, makes us ask further questions.
2: Yeah, it never ends.
0: And I think that in in and of itself is a kind of joy once seen properly. Yeah, you said it. And
2: that's, you know, if if the intellect is ultimately made to to know truth completely, to see him face to face, to know as we are known, what a powerful statement that is. But then what's the will made for? I think Aquinas says somewhere that the will is ultimately made for joy. Uh, Certainly in this life, there is an element of striving and desiring. But once we have the object of our desire, once we possess our beloved and he possesses us, then the will doesn't just go away. It's like, good job, Will, you've done your part like a faithful dog or something. But the will does what it was ultimately made to do, and that is
0: rejoice. Yeah, to, to rejoice and to continue in that act, right? Um, to to have that act of repose. Uh, and yeah. I think that's something that we in our busy world and our busy lives tend to forget. Yeah, uh, is that repose is in action?
2: Wow. yeah. Hey, what's the last line in I think Narnia Chronicles or something? It's like ever and ever deeper and deeper, more and more. And that's that's heaven. You'll spend forever getting to know God and each other and everything, and and there'll be no frustration about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, perfect uh, perfect unending uh, ac- action, perfect unending activity. Um, yeah but
2: passive activity, I mean it's contemplative ultimately it's, it's theoria right Well I, I, and I, I think
0: yeah um, I think even in you know that sort of that passive activity, it's passive in the sense that that we are not the source of it, right It's not coming from us. That's right, but it's it's also perfect and complete um such that it's not as though we're being moved in any way against ourselves but we're being moved to our own perfection being yeah. moved to our own full yeah. whole actuality ourselves in a way that so we can never perform yeah
2: this is ourselves. this is my favorite question uh I, I i wrote my master's thesis on this for what it's worth something that nobody will ever read but we can discuss <laughs> it now um passion plays a key role in every knowing action right it's a it's a almost the beginning of any moral act that is we are being affected we are being acted on and that causes us uh, to know and, and encourage us is us to know and, and to love and then ultimately that passion will never get us to our ultimate destination right passion will always fall short for us but it is precisely through the object of our desire assuming incarnate form And himself undergoing passion. And I think there is a sense in which those two meanings of the passion, that is our knowing passion and his historical passion are interchangeable without mixing categories. That is his passion as a movement of love for us as beloved supplements the frailty of ours, drawing us into a connatural union.
0: Yeah and I think we um you know even to to ground that a little bit right I think um in our human relationships we observe a, a less perfect instance of that when you see someone yes. undergo suffering on your behalf uh, that draws you and that person together right? there's oh, that's there's a beautiful that's right. A complementarity well, that goes on there.
2: Yes. And uh, to quote St. John, they will look, uh, well, I guess he's quoting Isaiah, but they will look upon him whom they have pierced. That is, his passion at our hands is literally affecting our knowledge of him. Or when you speak of his apprehension in the garden, that is both a historical Uh, Conquest and arrest of this man who is the object of our knowledge, this God man. But it's also an epistemological happening. To the extent that he suffers us, we know him. Reality has to suffer us to be fully known.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we we all have to suffer someone to know them, right? (laughs) Um, Exactly. uh, Christ in suffering the passion of of, uh, our faults. Our sins uh, knows us more perfectly than we know ourselves. Uh, so I need not yeah.
2: ask it, but as far as your, your take on the premise of Christ question, uh, why don't you just state the obvious for us? I'm sorry, what now? The premise of Christ question, uh, the, the the great debate between the, the Thomas and the Franciscans, does Christ need to become incarnate uh, from the beginning for our beatitude to take place? <laughs>
0: uh from the beginning right Um, so prior to uh pre pre pre-lapsarian pre-lapsarian
2: that's right what is what is this strange tree of life doing in the garden alongside the tree of knowledge
0: of good and evil yeah uh no i mean uh i'm I'm gonna take the thomas side every time and almost every question (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs)
2: wise man larissa you must have many questions Bring us down to Earth.
1: Okay. I wanted to go back to your paper. So there is on the Lyceum Institute website. It's a Education in Digital Life, I think is the name of it. Is that correct? But it's 115 pages all about the, the founding definition of the Lyceum Institute. So if you're interested to our listeners, go check it out. But an essay that Brian, you specifically wrote about signs and meaning, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because what you and John are talking about regarding meaning and knowing is all through this. And there's a, there's some points that I wanted to pull out and read because you're talking about these deers by the water, and it's it's great. But I'm not going to. Your listeners can go find them. It's good, but oh. I. <laughs> I yeah I want to ask you 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 i think that you're saying before knowing and being and in order to well, I don't know, can you kind of help draw the connection there between these signs and the significance of these signs to knowing
0: yeah um so uh just very quickly on on that document, it is that uh, we put together a little um Founding Declaration for the Lyceum, sort of the vision of education that we have, uh, and then there's a, a group of um, six different, six different essays in there, I believe, uh, by myself and some other faculty fellows that just sort of expound on a few of the themes. And the one in particular which uh, Larissa is referencing, it's actually uh, I initially gave it as a lecture in a slightly different format at uh, St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Um, just sort of trying to, to introduce uh, semiotics and and uh, meaning and nature of signs. And the notion of uh, what a sign is. Um, to back up just a little bit, this was the the, the passion project, if you will, of my dissertation director, uh, John Dealey. Who was uh, a brilliant, but uh, I think often misunderstood and uh, at times rather cantankerous individual. Um, so uh, I've been trying to, to to help make his work a little bit more accessible to some other people. Um, and John is—he was a prolific author. Uh, he wrote, I believe, twenty-six books, um, co-authored or edited another thirty-six, and published over two hundred academic articles in his career. Uh, but his his magnum opus, or at the very least, his his largest and lengthiest work, um, not that this is great for for a podcast, but uh, it's this you know thousand-page tome, uh, four ages of understanding on the, the history of philosophy. And he interprets um, the, the four ages of antiquity, the what he calls the Latin age, uh, as opposed to the medieval, uh, the modern and the uh, as yet not fully named postmodern age. Uh, he tells the story uh, in terms of signs and what a sign is and how understanding or misunderstanding the nature of a sign leads to an understanding or misunderstanding of the nature of human knowledge uh, as all knowledge is through signs and this is something which became increasingly evident throughout the latin age of philosophy from augustine up until ponzo and shortly thereafter Uh, but that was very much lost in the modern age the modern age lost the the reality that cognition is mediated through signs and and this has led i think in a lot of ways to an awful lot of the uh intellectual problems which plague our current world is this misunderstanding of knowledge as being uh, by by means of signs. So uh, in some sense the the uh, idea of semiotics as the study of signs and its incorporation particularly into the Lyceum is that you know, today I'd say we we suffer from a meaning problem in the world right? That's maybe one way of of articulating something that's very much at the basis of the problems that we see today. Uh, There's a problem of meaning. Uh, People don't know what meaning is, they don't know how to find it, and they perhaps despair of its its possibility of having a meaningful life. Uh, So I think semiotics is something which can retrieve a, a proper and accurate understanding of knowledge, and how we discover meaning is something quite essential to to recovering from our our nihilistic mm. atmosphere of today.
2: Mm. Wow. And there's so much, I mean, you could take this on epistemologically, you could take it on politically pretty easily. There's this undercurrent of tribalism uh, politically these days, everybody wants to belong to something. They're thirsty for belonging. They're thirsty to to be a part of something greater than themselves where did we lose uh the meaning of meaning where where does the breakdown happen in the history of thought and where do you see it being recovered now besides your thesis
0: <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> i hope my thesis helps <laughs> i hope my thesis helps but i don't think it's going to uh, do it all on its own um, no, I mean, it, you know, these these questions about where do we we find the break are always interesting because uh, it's not just one break, right? It's not right. as though there's one singular watershed moment where you can say, "Oh, this is where the dam, you know, completely uh, fell apart." Uh, it's bit by bit. Um, so you can you can go to Occam, um, you can go to if you really want to, you could go to Scotus. though I think Scotus gets a, an unfair shake uh, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, in in this history, uh, but Occam, uh, Suarez, um, all of the various disputes and debates about nominalism that come about in the fourteenth and fifteenth century um, that carry onward up until the the seventeenth, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the followers of Occam and, and Suarez in particular are um, jointly influential on Descartes. Uh, Descartes is, is one who I think certainly does bear considerable weight in the, the loss of meaning, um, not necessarily by his simple rejection of Aristotle um, and Aristotelian natural philosophy, but by his, his presupposition, which is that ideas are the direct and immediate object of our cognition, that we know what's in our minds. And that we then make a further active comparison between the knowledge in our minds and things supposedly outside of them. What's curious about that to me is how every modern responding to Descartes just accepts that presupposition without questioning it. That presupposition is accepted without question in Locke and Berkeley and Hume and in, in everyone in Kant and everyone who's a major influence in the modern period uh even even someone like uh, uh Thomas Reed um accepts it as at least a position against which uh one must must try and combat um and he kind of muddies the waters in various other ways so I think that's um certainly where you can find uh uh you know a key figure but Descartes wouldn't have had his ideas without the Scholastics. Uh, he wouldn't have had his notions without, on the one hand, the Parisian alchemists, um, who were most especially his teachers in mathematics, uh, as well mm-hmm. as his his instruction by the Jesuits at La Fleche, uh, who were using a, a manual of distilled Suarezian you know, pseudo Thomism. Uh, and you wouldn't have had Suarez without uh, Occam and and all these other figures as well. So there's a long, you know, sort of system of roots here. I think in terms of this loss of meaning, um, I think it becomes more sharply realized in in the 19th and 20th centuries as uh, we have increasingly a divorce between things like Christian faith and and reason, and as the christian sentiment starts to wane for various reasons you see that well uh, sentiment without reason can't really stand on its own and the sentiment can be destroyed by environments and all these other sorts of things
2: can you offer a non-circular definition of
0: meaning non-circular definition of meaning um well uh, i think to, first it's helpful to disambiguate Um, That I think meaning, as we use it as a word, um, not quite equivocal, but uh, perhaps ambiguous or analogical. And unless we can identify the core root meaning of meaning, we misunderstand what we mean. Um,
2: (laughs) By the way, I wasn't accusing you of being circular at all, but I'm sitting here trying to get a pretty precise definition of meaning without being circular. And I find it's rather challenging.
0: Yeah. So... um, Well and I think this is where that disambiguation can help because we, we often use the term meaning in the sense of what is meaningful or that which has some sort of uh, at least generally teleological importance to us, right that there's a, a purposiveness which is fulfilled by the attainment to the pursuit of some goal. Um, so your 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 um, family is is meaningful to you or it's meaningful that you do things with or for your family. Uh, So that general sense of the term. But I think there's also, in addition to that, the sense of referential context, uh, by which I mean the way in which something is specifically related to you as an individual, such that it comes to have a precise distinguished meaning. Um, So uh, sometimes that that can overlap with the teleological. um, But,
2: you know, how would you uh, translate uh, meaning into Latin? Sacramentum? uh,
0: uh i mean sacramentum I, I think um pertains more to a specific kind of of sign a specific kind of, of sign relation um well I'm try- I, I mean i guess is, i'm yeah. trying
2: to get it back to the, the the greek mysterion i don't so i don't know i mean i don't know how what would be the best way to translate into greek or latin which might help us reverse engineer the definition of
0: meaning well, and I think I think maybe if I lay out the the third sense in which we typically use the word um this might help because it might show why why we, I don't think there is a direct um Latin translation for how we use the term in English right uh, because the third sense in which we we say it and this is one that is often used and very seldom evaluated is that we're talking about what things are in themselves uh, we're we're talking about you know, the meaning of something right? Yeah. as what it is, regardless of what I happen to think about it. So, you know, I can think that water is made up of, uh, you know, other things like heat and earth or something like that. Well, that's not what water really means, not just the word, but the concept. The concept of water signifies something other in its own being, than that false definition or that false conception of my own and so there i would say what we're really talking about if he wants to put a latin term to it is quittitas a whatness
2: i was just going to yeah. say it's it's did we stumble upon uh another transcendental here right all that is is meaningful but then there's actually already a word for that so quittitas or even veritas
0: yeah uh and Quddi in particular is, um, and you know, it's it's interesting because that does that's a word that comes from from Arabic actually, or actually from a translation of Arabic, uh, an ad- attempt to render most specifically Avicenna's word. Um, uh, I, I just went right out of my head. It's been too long since I took my Avicenna course in grad school. Um, but yeah, this yeah. <laughs> Uh, this notion right, of, of quotitas is really what grounds and gives the possibility for realization of specifically human referential context of meaning and for that teleological importance. So if we're going to to talk about meaning as something which I do think analogically comprises those three different senses... It has to have as its primary analogy the sense of the quidditas of things, uh, the, the mind-independent cognition-independent awareness-independent, whatever we'd like to call it, uh, way of being that things have in themselves, um, from which we can uh, develop contexts of further meaning. Um, <clears throat> that's actually that's a point that it, that isn't discussed in my my dissertation, but in the second book that I wrote on on person Heidegger, but. I'll just throw a little pitch for myself in there.
2: <laughs> so, so we have to say that everything there are different kinds of things everything that we know is a, is a different sort of whatness. But then with that there's also a communication or a transmission or reflection of all that is. So Blake says right to see heaven in a grain of sand. There's something about each whatness somehow as a prism reflects the rest of the of the quiddities and could we call that meaning
0: uh well i mean i I think we would distinguish between um and this is a very interesting point that i find uh is beautifully articulated in fact in thomas aquinas summa theologia uh, question 45 article 7 uh, which specifically addresses whether there is a trace of the trinity in all things heck yes Um, there is yeah and and in that discussion um he takes up principally from augustine but from a few other sources as well this this sort of ubiquitous threefoldness, which is found in in all beings distinctly in human beings and that there is an image of of the trinity in human beings among created substances that we have direct observation of um but also uh, a trace or a vestige in all other things inasmuch as much as all other things have not only the fact of their existence their their substantiality which is a reflection of the father um, as well as an intelligibility or the species the species or the quiddity we could say which is a reflection of the Son, the logos the word but also they have a relativity uh, a being towards or a relationality to them, which is an image or a reflection rather of the spirit. And so in understanding the quiddity of any one thing, that quiddity is by its very nature in relation to things other than itself.
2: Would you pin that uh, just to, to get a little more color on that? Would you pin that relationality on aliquidity in Aquinas's language or what does he do?
0: Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Al- Aliquid, right? Is uh, it's listed as a transcendental, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> uh, and it, it's listed as a transcendental, which is a kind of negation, right? a kind of right. Negation, it's this meaning. thing and not that thing. Yeah, some some yeah. other what, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Broken down by its etymology, and so uh, yeah, that that in realizing any one what which is in and of itself finite, uh, we distinguish it as some what which is not another what.
2: <clears throat> yeah but that but with yeah. that the import there is that there's a there's a relationality just by it being not this thing but it's still a thing and somehow related everything is related to everything else like you can't i could just give you any noun right shoelace you can't tell me anything that has nothing to do with shoelace there's always a connection yeah uh, so, uh, and
0: yeah, the shoelace uh, on, on my boots downstairs has something to do with Alpha Centauri.
2: That's mm. right.
0: That's right. You could
2: be you You could don a shoelace while thinking you, you are donning shoelaces at this very moment while contemplating Alpha Centauri, but enough about shoelace theory. I don't think that uh, I don't think that Aquinas uses this language in this context, but isn't there. Another reflection of the Trinity in all things, and again, it's a very, it's a, it's a whole another question whether for Aquinas beauty is a transcendental. You could say yes, you could say no, but everything is knowable, everything is desirable as goods, so everything is true, everything is good, and also in a sense everything is enjoyable as you take delight in union with this thing as true and good. Does that not demonstrate a reflection of the Trinity in itself?
0: Well, yeah, I, I think actually the notion of beauty and even the way that Aquinas treats of beauty pertains to that because uh, beauty is is very much relational in the way that Aquinas discusses it. Um, that it's it's not just right. about the it's not just about what's in the thing, but it's about that it's being you know appreciated by the one appreciating the beautiful. Um, that there's there's that being drawn towards it um and i think that uh you know it's it's easy to get a little sucked into sort of numerological things right um but certainly we do see the threefoldness i think really quite everywhere in in the universe and in human experience of it um even in something like uh the rhetorical appeals the appeal to reason the appeal to passion and the appeal to to ethos um i think there's a comparability even there to to the true, the um, good, and the uh, the beautiful, perhaps. Um, wow! So never, yeah, that, yeah.
2: That, and that's obviously you're you're basically quoting Aristotle's rhetoric. Does Aquinas make that same judgment? That's that's really good news. I've never heard that before. I think that's beautiful.
0: And I don't know that he does. Um, in fact, uh, uh, we we just did, or we we just did the rhetoric uh, last year um, in in the fall. Um, or I guess, no, in the summer last year, we did a, a rhetoric course and, uh, it'd been a long time since I myself had gone through Aristotle's work on it. And I just, I saw it completely differently. First of all, there's a great translation, uh, that just came out last year or the year before, I think by Robert Bartlett, uh, which helps a lot having a good translation, um, since yeah. my Greek's pretty poor. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, Aquinas uh, in his treatment of of the rhetoric, he got the rhetoric fairly late, I believe, uh, in Latin translation in his life. Um, so it was really only when he was writing the Summa that he had it, and it was still fairly, I think, sketchy, More Becky's translation wasn't maybe as, as great as it could have been. Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: I just taught a class for AMI on St. John's Gospel, and what I think is his use of Aristotle's rhetoric. I think it's almost hard to doubt that he, John himself didn't have access to it. Uh, well, speaking just, of, go ahead, Larissa.
1: All right. I was just going to say, speaking of St. John, which yeah. I might embarrass myself in front of John because it might actually be St. Luke, but one of the gospel writers, when they're talking about Christ's miracles, they it's called, he refers to them as his signs. Is that John? He never once calls them miracles. They're always signs. And thinking yeah. about that in light of this conversation is kind of amazing because it shows the signs, the actuality of Christ. You see his, you see his signs, but they're not, they're not just miracles. It's easy no, to it's, say, oh, yeah. it's a miracle. Right. No, they're signs of who Christ is. And I said I wasn't going to, but can I read this small portion from this? Because I think this ties it all together really well. Yes. And, and
2: that, that is John. That's his the whole book of There's signs. This it's yes.
1: Embarrassing. <laughs> but you said um what makes semiotics inherently interdisciplinary is the commonality of signs, the action of which cuts across all objects we might study down a little bit. Um if we wish, hold on, where is it? Okay, I lost it. All our pursuits of knowledge are ordered to objects, but are ordered to objects by means of signs. It right back to what you guys were saying about trinity everything in this three it goes back to the logos the sign capital l logos being cut across all objects of study
0: <clears throat> well yeah and what's what's really um fascinating about signs themselves and this is where um john ponceau is an enormously influential figure Uh, or oughts to be, Uh, he's he's perhaps not quite gotten fully the recognition that he deserves. But uh, a a sign is itself inherently triadic, that uh, a sign is not the thing which signifies alone, but is the accomplished relation between that which does the signifying, the object signified, and the one to whom it is signified. So there's always this element of, of mediation to a recipient, which is part of what makes something to be a sign. In fact, not just that it happens to bear this potential meaning, but that it in fact draws the, the mind or the, uh, whatever it may be to that object so as to be aware of it so again three threes are everywhere right, um, right. and so when we talk about you know uh christ as as uh, a sign or christ's actions as signs um it's not just that uh they're they're there to be discovered it's that they're actualized they're brought they bring into real relation those who witness them yes. and the truth uh, which which christ brings to to awareness.
2: <clears throat> There's a lot there we could sleep on and meditate on that was beautiful. Uh I want to have more of these discussions Dr. Kempel that was that was fantastic and thank you for coming on the show here Lyceum.institute for more on the Lyceum Institute. And can I plug your personal twitter which I find to be pretty edifying? Usually Sure. I just followed you myself here. that's at real brian kemple k e-m p l e on Twitter. Be edified as well. Anything else you want to plug or say, Brian? Thank you so much for being here.
0: No, I mean uh, thank you for having me. Um, you know like I was uh, uh, I, I was saying to Larissa, I think before you you uh, got on. Um, you know I think it, it, there's so much interest in study. Uh, to be pursued online these days there's so much of an openness a possibility um, given this new digital environment that we inhabit um, that it would be foolish of us really not to to collaborate and to see all the various ways in which we can grow uh, this desire and grow uh, people's love of study and love of uh learning love of love of really flourishing as human beings. I think Um,
2: I completely agree. So let's have your people call my people and we'll get something on the books and (laughs) maybe even doing it in person collaboration. I think that'd be great. I I just, I love conversations like these. I I hope we didn't bore our audience to death, but I, and I also hope we gave God a little chuckle us little toddlers poking around in the dark about how we know him, (laughs) you know, in our, in our feebleness. (laughs) Uh, but that's what we're made to do. So uh, S- through a
0: veil you. and darkly.
2: <clears throat> that, that's right. Uh, and now I see through cloudy glass, but then I shall see him face to face. No, no, as I am known. Can't wait. That'll be fun. We'll have to continue this conversation in this life and the next. And uh, yeah, Institute, Dr. Brian Kemple, thank you so much for your time. Larissa, thank you for yours as well. Great work as always. See you guys soon. MagnusInstitute.org for more. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus
0: Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit MagnusInstitute.org. Copyright
2: 2023. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.